Well, we're in our eighth week of Romans 8. I'm sad to be ending it, I've got to be honest. And boy, does the Spirit finish strong through the Apostle Paul. We're at the end of Romans chapter 8, and what we've seen the last several weeks is that the Spirit's purpose in this section is to assure us, to secure us on the basis of the unchangeable, eternal purpose of God, which is rooted in the unshakable and unconditional love of God plan of God rooted in the love of God. And last week I mentioned that this last section here, Romans 8, 31 to the end of the chapter gives us five questions that we can build our life upon. Let me repeat them. We looked at three of them last week. Number one, who can be against us? Number two, how will God not give us all things? Number three, who will bring any charge against us? Number four, who can condemn us? And number five, who can separate us from the love of God? So covered the first three last week. This week we'll cover the last two. But for the sake of context, let's read Romans 8.28 to the end of the chapter. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 888. Let's look at Romans 8.28. The Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we are secure in the love of God. Let's look at these last two questions and let's turn them into declarations rather than questions. So number one, no one can condemn those for whom Christ died. It's right there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
You know, we asked the question, who can condemn? And last week we asked, who can accuse? Who can bring a charge? And we saw last week, well, there's actually all kinds of things. Our conscience can condemn us. Others can condemn us. The enemy is called the accuser. He will seek to condemn us. But at the end of the day, their approval or their lack of approval does not matter. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Paul is like, what do you think the cross was all about? He died for the very sins which would lead to your condemnation. He was condemned. He, not us. He was condemned in our place. Remember Romans 8, chapter 1. Look there again. Very first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. Who is to condemn? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3. Chapter 8, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh and for a sin offering. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for our sin. Friends, the case is closed in your favor. No one can bring new evidence against you. Remember Romans 4? God justifies the ungodly. And the opposite of condemnation is justification. We are not condemned if we've trusted in Jesus Christ. We are justified. We are declared in the right. Sins forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins. And we are declared in the right. Not because of us. Not because of our performance. Not because of our worthiness. Not because of anything in us but because we trust Jesus Christ who justifies sinners. Who is to condemn? We've already been condemned 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. Our sins are forgiven. We are righteous in Christ. So who is to condemn? Remember Luther's quote? The, The devil brings up our sin, tell him, you know what, I agree. What of it? I know the Lord. I know the Son of God who died in my place. I'm going to be with him. Who is to condemn? We've been set free. Jesus paid it all. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in parts, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. But notice, though, more than just dying, he was raised. More than that, he was raised. See, if Jesus had just died, there would be no victory. But we know the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. He didn't remain in the tomb. Death couldn't keep the God-man down. Flip over page at Romans 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Listen to what he says in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He didn't remain dead. He walked out the tomb. He arrested death. He trampled it. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. More than that, though, he also ascended to the right hand of God. Let's read it again. Look at Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. 
Not only did he die, not only was he raised, he's at the right hand of God. He's at the place of prominence. He's resting from his finished work, victorious, at the place of supreme honor, the place of authority. After the resurrection and the ascension, all of God's power and all of God's sovereignty is mediated through the Son. You know what that means? That means Jesus is in charge. The right man is in charge. The one who gave himself for your sins is the one who rules the world. The only one with the authority then to condemn you will not condemn you. Rather, he gave his life so that you wouldn't be condemned. King Jesus is at the helm of the cosmos. Your sins are forgiven. Your king conquered death. He rules the world. What do we have to worry about? He can handle anything we bring him. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Why this fear and unbelief? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. But that's not all. More than that, Jesus Christ is interceding for us. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Isn't that amazing? Flip over. In fact, I think I've got it on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know that the risen Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, always lives to make intercession for you. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, that's Hebrews 7.25. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, that's the right hand of God, no tongue can bid me thence depart. We are secure in the love of God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he came to pay our ransom through the saving cross he bore. He watches over his loved ones, those he died to make his own. How for them he's interceding, pleading now before the throne on your behalf. You know, we get a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus in John chapter 17. We call it the high priestly prayer. And there he tells us he's praying for his people in a special way, interceding for those that the Father's given him. He says in chapter 17, verse 9, he's, I'm praying for them. He's praying for his people. So I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The whole chapter is his prayer. Look over at verse 15 if you've got it open. I do not ask, here's his prayer. This is Jesus' prayer for us. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them 
from the evil one. He, he asked for our preservation. You remember the Peter, what he told Peter? I'm praying for you that Satan wouldn't sift you. Verse 16, they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What's Jesus' prayer for you? That you would be conformed to his image, that you would be sanctified, that you would be set apart increasingly. That's his prayer. And what is the means by which he's asking the Father to do that? The truth, the word. This is why at Southside we're so rigorously ruled by God's word because we believe this prayer. The means by which we're sanctified is the word. He says, Father, sanctify them. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world you're a sent people and for their sake I concentrate consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word now he's literally praying for us not the ones right in front of him but those who would believe the gospel later what's he praying that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, and that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Son prays for us. But if you've been with us in Romans, it's not just the Son. Look over at chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Is not this incredible? How secure are we? The Son of God and the Spirit of God intercede for the people of God. The Son who loved us and gave himself for us intercedes for us. He defends us from all accusations. And the Spirit intercedes, prays on our behalf, helps us. John Murray says, Christ is our intercessor in the court of heaven and the Holy Spirit is our intercessor in the theater of our own hearts. Jesus is for us, and he's praying for us. We have an advocate at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the courtroom of heaven, he provides warrant for God to continue to lavish love upon us. We will not be forsaken. The victorious king is at the right hand of God advocating for you and I. No one in glory will have been forsaken except one. You will not cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he cried it on your behalf. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. 
he must hold me fast and hold us fast, he does. He dies for us and he prays for us. Robert Murray Machane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. No one can condemn those for whom Christ died. The second question turned into a declaration. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the last of the five questions, and really all the other ones are just different versions of this last one. And here he spends twice as long answering this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Will these things separate us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, will it separate you from the love of Christ? No. Just look at Paul. <laughs> Paul faced all of these things and more. And if you've been, as, been with us for a few weeks, we saw in Romans 8, 28, that not only will these things not separate us from the love of Christ, verse 28, they will actually work for our good because God works them for our good. And what is that good? To be conformed to Jesus Christ. So not only will tribulation and distress and persecution, they won't separate us, but God will use them to sanctify us for our good, for his glory. Tribulation and distress and persecution will not separate us. What about famine? Will famine or nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? No. Jesus tells us, don't worry. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. He says, the Father feeds the birds of the air and are not you of more value than they? God clothes the grass of the field. God clothes the lilies of the field. Will he not much more clothe you, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 concludes Jesus says therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles the the pagans they seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you famine nakedness they will not separate us from the love of Christ next he asks, what about danger or sword will they separate us from the love of Christ no and here in America, at least currently, this is kind of unrelatable. doesn't seem to fit well, but we need to remind ourselves regularly that it sure does in other parts of the world. Christians ought to, I think, regularly go visit persecution.com and just read about how applicable this very verse is to so many places. There are more persecuted Christians in the world than at any other time in history. Did you know that? Places like Nigeria and India, North Korea, Sri Lanka, many, many, many others. There's over 245 million believers who live in areas where they experience high levels of persecution. In the last year, 4,305 Christians were killed for being Christians. Last year. In the last year, 1,847 church buildings or ministry buildings were attacked. In the last year, 3,150 believers were detained without trial or arrested or sentenced or imprisoned. And so we ought to pray for the persecuted church. Pray that they would believe this truth, that neither danger nor sword will separate them from the love of Christ. And then Paul quotes scripture, as he often does, as it is written, God's words, Paul's authority, and it's ours. And he appeals here to the Old Testament. 
and specifically Psalm 44, which is about the suffering of the people of God, just to say, hey, it's the norm. We shouldn't be surprised. It's always been this way that we will face danger and sword and persecution. Then notice what he does in verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul actually makes up a word here for more than conquerors. It's like hyper conquerors, super triumphers. How can we be more than conquerors though? If we're conquerors, we're already on the top, right? If you're a conqueror, you are the victor. You're on the top. You have defeated all enemies. So what does it mean to be more? Well, I think he's actually saying not only will we not be defeated by our foes, we will defeat them through Christ, but not only will we defeat them through Christ, we will actually subjugate them. Again, Romans 8, 28, meaning we will turn them on our side. It's really God doing it through us. Not only will God conquer, God will turn the foes to work for his purposes. Romans 8, 28, working all things for the good. So something that we think might actually defeat us will not defeat us and actually will make us more like Jesus because God works all things together, together for the good of those who love him to make us like Jesus, to conform us to the image of the Son, make us like Jesus. So we're more than conquerors. But notice what he says there in verse 37. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He doesn't always take us out of these things, but in all these things. We will not be defeated because we're in Christ Jesus. This life will consist of suffering. There's no promise of Scripture that God will remove us from these things, from the hard parts. In fact, the, often it's the opposite. We've seen that in Romans 8, verse 17. We will be glorified. That's coming. But right now, what are we going to do? Suffer with them. That's the pattern of Jesus. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering, then glory. But we know that glory is coming. And we know that the future glory makes the present sufferings not even worth comparing. And so we can persevere through the trials. Look at verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I'm sure. I'm convinced. Remember how this section starts in verse 28. He says, we know, we know, we are sure, we are convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing in life. I mean, he lists here anything in our life that might be able to. Nothing in life will separate us. And not even death. Death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, for those in Christ, death has been subjugated. Now death is actually not a bad thing for Christians. Philippians 1.21, death is gain. Why? Because we get to be with him. Death has lost its sting. It's not a period, it's a comma. In fact, for us, really, life doesn't begin until death. You ever think about that? Death doesn't separate us from the love of God in Christ. Death opens the door so that we can experience it fully without sin. Nor angels nor rulers will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rulers are demons. So no spiritual being, whether good or bad, not even Satan. Why? Because his accusations now fall flat. He has been defanged. 
Flip over to chapter 16, verse 20 of Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He's already a defeated enemy. No ruler can cut you off from God's love. You have the victory. Victory is mine. I told Satan, get thee behind. Because victory today is mine. Nor things present, nor things to come. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No present circumstances, no future circumstances. You are secure in the unshakable eternal love of God. Nor powers will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands. Here in the power of Christ we stand. Nor height, nor depth will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No spatial category. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. And in case he left anything out, it's fairly comprehensive so far, but he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in human experience, death or life, nothing in the spiritual realm, angels or demons or powers, nothing in time, present or future, nothing in space, height nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go online and Google things that can separate believers from the love of God. Results? None. No results found. There should be no separation anxiety among the children of God. Notice we start in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice how he ends up here. No separation. This sandwich of assurance for the children of God. No condemnation and no separation because of the cross of Christ. Oh, Christian, do you grasp the love of God? Flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're familiar with Ephesians in chapter 1, he talks about the glories of the gospel and how God is to be blessed. And Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead in sin and by grace God's made us alive. And then in the second half of chapter 2, he talks about he's in unity. He's brought Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. And then in chapter 3, he turns to prayer. So verse 14, for this reason, for everything I've just said about all that God has done for us in Christ, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here's the content of the prayer, may you have the strength, because you're going to need strength for this, to comprehend with all the saints God, would you give them the strength of comprehension? What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know 
the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, would you help them to know something that at the end of the day is unknowable? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians, that language of being filled with the fullness of God is just talking about Christian maturity, becoming like Jesus. So what's he praying here? God, would you help your people to experience and understand and know and comprehend your love that it might lead to maturity? We really don't get to the fullness of Christ, to Christian maturity without grasping the depth of God's love. And notice here, the love of God matures us. It leads to that ends. So are you secure in the steadfast love of God? Listen to the words of our king, the one who died for your sins. He says this, the one who was raised, the one who was ascended, the one who's at the right hand of God, the one who's praying. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. God wants his children assured. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes, lived in the 19th century He lists several reasons in that book. He's got a whole chapter on assurance. And he lists several reasons why assurance is actually seldom obtained among the people of God. And one of the main ones, he says, is a defective view of justification. Now, if, again, you've been with us in Romans, we've talked a whole lot about justification. In some ways, Romans 1 to 3 is about the need for justification. Romans 4 and 5 is about the provision of justification. Here's what he says. He says, they don't seem to comprehend that there's a wide difference between our justification and our sanctification. Our justification is a perfect, finished work and admits of no degrees. He says, I think one of the main reasons why the people of God don't have assurance is they mix justification and sanctification. Justification is the one-time declaration. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, you are justified, period, full stop, not a process. By the way, this is what sets us apart from the Roman Catholic Church. That's what they teach about it. We don't, as a Protestant church, it's a declaration one time when you trust Jesus Christ. But often even us, even Protestants, confuse justification with sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is the process of growing more like Jesus, how we're doing. What's going on here? Justification is what happened there 2,000 years ago. And so we have to be sure here. My status and my standing in God's love and approval of me is not dependent upon me. It's all to do with Jesus Christ dying in our place. And from that foundation, from that basis, then we get on with the messy lifelong process of sanctification. We've got to have those two separate, J.C. Ryle says, and I think he's right, or we will lack assurance. But if you get these in proper order, assurance will come. So in an unstable world, believer, be assured by the love of God in Christ Jesus. Be assured by what he has done, by his promises. Our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is not in our love for him. Some days it's good. Most days it's feeble and flaky. But his steadfast love his constant unchanging immovable inexhaustible unshakable faithful love 
love that will not let us go. We rest our weary soul in thee. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Even though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. The Lord is with us. We've got to get this. We've got to get this for our own joy because someone who's not assured will have no joy. But we also won't really live for the Lord until we have that settled, especially when it comes to taking risks. We've got to have that settled before we will live lives of risk for the kingdom of Christ. When I was growing up, we would often go to Possum Kingdom Lake, and uh, I never saw a possum there. I don't know why it's called Possum Kingdom, but we would go there, and one of our favorite things was there's a little area, if you've been there, and they've got this huge cliff called uh, Hell's Gate, I think is what it's called, but Hell's Gate was too big for us, plus illegal. But across the way, there were some, you know, anywhere from 40 to 80 foot cliffs, and so we would go up, and uh, we were young and dumb, going to jump off of them. But you never know what's down there, right? And so we would swim and do our part to see if there's anything in that water to be safe. But you can only swim down so far. But my dad had a, a boat and had a depth finder. Your depth finder, tell us how deep it was. And so we would get him to go, you know, we're on the cliff. And he would go right about where we're going to land, hopefully. And with the depth finder, you know, haul up, that's 50 feet deep. And so we're good. All right, 50 feet, no rocks. We're going to be clear. We had the assurance. We had a safe landing. And so we jumped. We were able to take the risk because we were assured of our destination. If we're not assured of God's love, we're not going to take risk for him. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, have you been holding back from a risky, costly course to which you know in your heart God has called you? Hold back no longer. Your God is faithful to you and he is adequate for you. You will never need more than he can supply. And what he supplies, both materially and spiritually, will always be enough for the present. Psalm 84, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Think on these things and let your thoughts drive out your inhibitions about serving your master. You can take risks. He's got you. Friends, what good news do we have in Romans 8? You've been loved from all eternity, foreknown, predestined, called in history, justified by faith. You are being conformed to the image of the Son. You will be glorified. It's a guarantee so much so that he speaks of it in the past tense. We ought to have unwavering security because of him who loved us, because of him who died, because of him who was raised, because of him who was ascended, because of him who's interceding for us. No opposition. No accusation, no condemnation, no separation. One of my favorite catechisms is the Heidelberg Catechism, and they sum up. It almost seems like they were thinking of Romans 8 when they write the very first question of this catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair 
can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I hope you got Romans 8 in your bones. Here's how the message paraphrases it. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. You think anyone's going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. No trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Robert Bruce was a Scottish minister in the 1600s, and he was sick. He, he, was, he knew he was ailing. One morning, he's with his family, and he's eating breakfast, and he realizes he's dying. And so he told his daughter next to him, he says, hold, daughter, hold, my master calls me. And he asked for his copy of the word of God, but his eyesight was failing. So he asked his daughter, So get that Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. He said, cast me up the eighth of Romans. He said, and he repeated the words as his daughter read them. I'm sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he said, God be with you, my children. I've eaten breakfast with you. I'm going to have supper with my Lord Jesus this night. And he puts his hand on the page of Romans 8 and he said, I die believing these words. Will you live and will you die believing these words?